Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. If you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you will have noticed that JF and I tend to pursue our thoughts along two paths. Along one path, we discuss things that almost anyone would agree are weird. Spooky magical tomes or the short stories of Thomas Ligotti, stuff like that. Along the other path, we discuss things that at first blush don't seem that weird at all. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Walking, Things whose weirdness is latent, even hidden, and needs to be drawn out through philosophical practice. Such a practice might be called weirding, a word I first heard used by Eric Davis in an interview with Timothy Morton. This week's episode is on weirding, a method of perception analogous to queering by which the mystery that lies at the root of all things becomes manifest. Today's show could be compared to episode 120 on Radical Mystery and episode 106, The Wanderer, which likewise find J.F. and me thinking about thinking. As Weird Studies has grown, we have been reflecting more and more on what kind of intellectual project it represents, and what kinds of thinking are proper to it. And the practice of weirding is the beating heart of Weird Studies. So last year, when we were considering how to frame the book we wanted to write, it quickly became clear that we wanted to write a book on weirding. Thus, Weirding is the title of both this episode and the book we are writing, and it's also the name we're giving to an eight-week course we're teaching on the neuro-learning platform starting next week on October 25th. Needless to say, you can follow a link in the show notes to find out all the particulars. The course follows the structure of the book, with each week focusing on a different chapter topic, the trash stratum, zones, hyperstition, and other chestnuts from the Weird Studies conceptual lexicon. The course will give us an opportunity to work on the book alongside our listeners, who have become an indispensable part of our process. For example, my essay, Diviner's Time, which incidentally will be one of the course readings, started off as a short conference paper, but unfurled into its true form when an early draft was published for our Patreon followers and conversations began to break out, both online and on the show. And this is what we're after with our online weirding course. Now, if you want to join us, don't worry about having to add your voice to our thoughts. You can choose your own level of involvement, and if being a fly on the wall is more your style, that's fine by us. And if you don't want to join us at all, that's fine too. You don't have to care about our course, or our book, or the Patreon, or any of that to enjoy the conversation that follows, in which JF and I discuss what weirding means, its analogy to queering, the spooky agency of artworks, the aesthetics of camp, and more. And if that doesn't sound like your scene, then wait a couple weeks and check out our long-awaited discussion of Federico Campagna's philosophical opus, Technique and Magic. In the near term, we're also planning shows with Victoria Nelson on her masterwork, The Secret Life of Puppets, and with Professor Jacob Foster on what William Irwin Thompson called Wissenkunst, 
as well as our usual two-handers, where J.F. and I discuss artworks, such as The Exorcist, which J.F. thinks is going to scare the socks off of me. We'll see about that. I like to think I'm made of stern stuff. But let's be real, I'll probably watch the whole thing through my fingers. I might even cry, which is something else we talk about today. But enough of all this. O Freunde nicht diese Töne, as Beethoven says. Enough thinking about thinking about thinking. Let us now set sail for the wilder shore of merely thinking about thinking. Let's talk about something more cheerful. Mm-hmm. No more these tones, as it says at the beginning of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony finale. I saw that this week. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with my daughter playing principal viola in the University Philharmonica Orchestra, which is the top tier orchestra. And of course, wow. to say that I was proud would be an understatement. It was just like, it was the Beethoven Ninth of pride is what I felt like right. this kind of in excelsis, Empyrean, ultimate pride. And also the music was pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I was I was in tears for most of the last movement. Do you cry at art? There's a question for you. There's a left field question. I, I, I ask because I've been reading a book by James Elkins called Pictures and Tears. Mm. He's an art historian, art critic, art, artologist who has a dashing and witty style and it's very enjoyable to read. He's extremely prolific. One of those people who puts the rest of us to shame. Anyway, this book, it just starts off and he's like, I want to know why and under what circumstances people cry at art. Mm. People do talk about like standing in front of paintings that reduce them to tears What's up with that? And I'm into it right now. This is a tie-in to the topic today, because a chapter of our book that I'm working on has to do with precisely this question, the ability of art to affect palpable, if not measurable, not just psychological change, but just like change. That It is something that has a spiritual and even physical force physiological and yeah exactly at yeah. the very least phys- and tears are pretty physical right mm-hmm. you, you know he, he writes in there he's like well i didn't want to just write a book about people having strong reactions to art because that would be everybody but tears he's like you know tears are already mysterious like people cry for so many reasons and tears are at least in the form that they take in human life, kind of unique in the animal kingdom. Tears are themselves mysterious. And then the question, why should a painting have anything to do with tears becomes super interesting when you start thinking about it. Anyway, all this is to say, do you cry at art ever? I do. 
I do cry at art surprisingly easily. <laughs> I'm not a crier as a person. I'm not someone who cries, but I'm much more likely to cry at art than I am to cry at real life situations. There's a great book that I, uh, I've read just a couple of chapters of it and then I moved on, but I need to finish it by Eugenie Brinkema called The Form of the Affects. And it begins with uh, an analysis of the tear philosophical exploration of the concept oh. of the tear and she plays with the word the tear the tear the tear in hitchcock which you know as the protagonist gets murdered in the in the shower and then the the scene ends with a kind of dolly out from her eye with a single tear coming down her face but you don't know mm. if it's just a drop from the shower or a tear it's a really cool uh, exploration of that weird a good example of how you can weird something banal tears and suddenly they become very strange when you start thinking mm. about them but um i do cry at art and i do believe that great art has a physiological effect and maybe that's kind of one of the conditions that mm. makes a great artwork and i find myself crying at art i mean it's usually music or film which usually involves music that will make me cry but i have cried at novels um, I'm trying to think if I've ever cried at a painting. Um, See, I'm not sure if I have. I, th I have a feeling I have, and I'm trying to think of what it might have been. I did cry when I walked in King's College Chapel and saw all the light coming through the impossibly beautiful and tall stained glass windows. And it's a very lofty building. Mm -hmm. And I was just completely overwhelmed by the space. Yeah, I've, been, I've cried at churches for sure, you know. It's even worse when you start thinking of the fact that these places were built by hand. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. 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 So, yes, I have, I have cried at art. We're discussing our book today, which is also our, our, the course we're doing together in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've broken up the book slash course into different chapters. And, of course, it's constantly evolving and changing. But we could have had a chapter on crying. Because I think crying is probably one of the weirdest things you can do. And I think that in moments when we cry, like a real good cry, we're actually quite close, I think, to the weird. Oh, absolutely. It's just so strange to cry at an artwork, even, you know, yeah. and especially something as abstract as music. And yet music is probably the art form that's most likely to elicit tears. David Lynch has a particular thing for showing people listening to music and crying. He does. There's that famous scene from Mulholland Drive. Yep. Where they're watching the film. Watching the show. Sorry, they're watching the show on They're watching stage. a show, yeah. yeah. And Rebecca Del Rio, I believe is the name of the singer, is singing an a cappella Spanish language version of Roy Orbison's Crying. Yeah. Which is extremely beautiful. And apparently Lynch was completely slayed emotionally by that song. And so he's like, I need that in my film somehow. You know, Lynch is not a complicated man. He does big emotional things in his films because he feels those big emotional things. He wanted, presumably wanted to show somebody crying to this song because the song is so deeply emotional. But he does it other places too. It happens in Twin Peaks The Return. It kind of happens in Blue Velvet when Frank is listening to another Roy Orbison song mm -hmm. in Dreams. In Dreams, yeah. And actually, that moment is really cool to talk about. You know, 
Dennis Hopper's performance is really amazing in that film. And you can see the song begin to take him, begin to take him over. And there's a look of confusion and almost like the look of somebody who's lost. Yeah. And then you see his face screw up in what looks like agony or some kind of agonized effort. And then he turns off the music that Dean Stockwell has been lip syncing to. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, let's let's go for a joyride. Let's fuck. And he's like, I want to fuck everything that moves. Is that what he ah! says? <laughs> and then in that wonderful jump cut where he's standing there, and then there's a jump cut to the the room empty, but you still oh, hear yeah, him yelling. I love that. Yeah, it's so cool. It's such a rifty moment. Yeah, and uh, it all concentrates around like watching somebody listen to music. And the thing that I love about that, and I feel that this is true for the way he puts crying into films, it tells the truth about crying, something about crying. It's really odd because you are seeing an outward trace of an intense inward experience. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But you don't actually get the intense inward experience communicated in any way. You only have the trace, like a shark's fin in the water. And you don't know what occasions it. So someone's listening to music and they're taken over by it. But why this music? Why now? Why in this situation? All you know is that there's something extremely intense going on. And all you know is that it's happening, but that moment itself remains a kind of black box. You just reminded me of this great passage from Deleuze and Guattari's What is Philosophy, which I'm going to read. It's very short. I'm going to read it because they get to this. The very beginning of the book, they're trying to demonstrate what philosophy is by engaging in an exercise of concept creation. They're like, well, let's create a concept, concept of the other, right? So they're trying to come up with a new concept of the other that hasn't been proposed by philosophers in the past. And it's really brilliant what they get. They write, There is at some moment a calm and restful world. Suddenly a frightened face looms up that looks at something out of the field. The other person appears here as neither subject nor object, but as something that is very different, a possible world, the possibility of a frightening world. Mm. So what a frightened face is, first and foremost, is the possibility of a frightening world. Because you can't see a face without also experiencing it as a locus of interiority, right? That's what a face is. A face is an index of an interior experience. That's how we experience, that's why we differentiate faces from other things. You see a face, you know that it's living something out. And if the face is frightened and looking off to some point that you can't see, you experience in that one expression a multitude of possible frightening worlds that this face might be experiencing at that moment. You're entering into an interiority, which is your own interiority, but which is inseparable from your experience of this exterior event, which is the face of the other. And I find that with crying, the great thing about that scene in Mulholland Drive is that we're seeing the singer, then we cut to our two protagonists, right? Um, I can't remember their names in the movie, but you do. Diane... Diane and, uh, I think it's Diane. No, I can't remember okay. actually. And Ra- Rachel, Rita. Rita. Yeah. I That's think. right. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I usually forget names of characters. Um, and we cut back to them and they're crying and we're experiencing, it's like, it's the same shot. We're seeing two sides of the same event, whether we're looking at the singer who is the cause of the crying or 
the two women crying. Oh, that's interesting. We're, we're looking at, it's like a dime. It's like a crystal. We're looking at one side yeah. and the other of the same event. And also to the person watching the film, the crying has to do with everything else that's going on in the movie. All of that is contained course, in that image yeah. as well, in that strange crystalline image. So like facial expressions, emo expressions of emotion are incredibly strange when you think about them. They challenge certain notions about how reality works in the sense that they reveal to us an interior, which is also just an aspect of the exterior. It's just cool to think about it that way. It is. Yeah. And, and you know, so, Ace. and crying being one of the most primal and certainly affective emotions uh, is probably the example to concentrate on if we're going to go into the weirdness of emotion. Yeah. And, and, you know, I find that Lynch or other filmmakers who were evidently influenced by Lynch, people like, uh, I'm thinking of Panos Cosmatos, the director of Mandy, uh, right. which we discussed in a, a previous show, horror directors too, in general, these are artists who are very much explicitly interested in the expression of emotion. And, uh, mm -hmm. of course, you could say that about all kinds of art, but there's a way in which surrealism or horror really tries to get to that point where emotions become physical events. And, mm. and I like the way they're writing that line between the inner and the outer, and it's obliterated, both in the subject matter of a horror film, where it's often impossible to know what's psychological and what's physical, you know, think of The Shining or any David Lynch film, or whether it's that moment where the tears that pour into the world are themselves the evidence or index of the interior world of the characters. Let's try to tie this back into the what we want to discuss, um, yeah. which is weirding. So what we've been discussing are ways in which, let's say, for example, David Lynch can weird crying. Right. Right? Uh, yeah. So what does it mean to weird something? Yeah. Well, I got the word from Eric Davis. I think it was in a conversation that he had with Timothy Morton, the philosopher. As I recall, I was scrubbing my bathtub and uh, <laughs> listening to the podcast, Expanding Mind, and Eric thinks about the perceptual strategy of queering, which is 
something that has been part of the intellectual vernacular now for quite some time, for decades. So queering is where you look at something that's nominally non-gay or non like non-queer, something that is even very <laughs> heteronormative. Think of like film musicals, for example, whose entire raison d'etre is to get heterosexual couples together through the medium of song and dance. And there's a way of watching those films in such a way that a certain underlying queerness, a certain kind of sexual and gender dissidence, or at least a dissident frame can appear and everything can look quite different. So a great example of this is in the Joel and Ethan Cohen film Hail Caesar, which is one of my favorite movies. It is a movie that makes me laugh till I cry, speaking of crying. And uh, it has Herbert Marcuse in it, for one thing, or an actor playing oh. a <laughs> fantasy version of Herbert Marcuse. Um, a circle of Hollywood communists. There's a, a zany plot about a Hollywood fixer of the old school, played by Josh Brolin, Aside from the zany plot, it is also an excuse for them to do set pieces that are kind of loving parodies or homages of genres of film that don't even exist anymore. So like musical swimming films, that's a genre that used to exist. I forget the name of the woman who was under contract at MGM, but she was like an Olympic diver or swimmer. I don't forget all the details, but like she made a whole bunch of these movies where they're singing, dancing, and swimming. Yeah. But in any event, it gives them an opportunity to do like Busby Berkeley style water ballets, or in the case that I'm going to talk about, apropos queering, it's like an absolute pitch perfect parody of a scene from like a 1940s musical. Think of something like On the Town. Mm-hmm. And the number they sing is called No Dames. And it's about a bunch of sailors who are in port for a day and they're hanging out at a dive bar. And their problem is that there's no dames. And so they do this whole singing and dancing number about how there's no dames. So they're just going to have to dance with each other. And the whole thing is incredibly <laughs> gay. <laughs> and what they're doing is affectionately sending up a genre that always had that potential. When you watch On the Town or any of these musicals of that era, it is the easiest thing in the world to queer them, to see this kind of um, compulsory glorification of heterosexuality reverse into something, well, queer. Yeah. And there's a certain delicious humor in that, which the Cohen brothers milked to the fullest, but also, you know, there's a lot of gay people who really love these films. It isn't necessarily, uh, you know, camp in the, what I think of as somewhat degraded sense where you just think that you're superior to what you're watching. It's quote unquote, so bad it's good. Like, no, you're seeing something that is actually latent in the film. That is a permissible, yeah. not just a permissible reading. It's a reading that kind of glows radioactively from the background. Yeah. It's latent. And queering is a way of finding, especially a lot of old Hollywood stuff and making it kind of glow with new radiance. 
And weirding, by analogy, is sort of doing the same thing, which is something we do all the time. People who listen to this show a lot don't even need a definition because they know that's just kind of our stock in trade. We will take things that, uh, you know, maybe we didn't even think that much about. Crying at art, for example, you know, crying at music, or like what happens when you film somebody crying at music? Crying at music is really normal, but what happens when you film it? Well, there's some kind of weirdness in the actual event of crying at music that we can kind of draw forth. And Eric's point in talking to Timothy Morton was that there's a kind of a, a way that we can do that philosophically. Weirding is a philosophical strategy. Exactly. But also, I think Eric has used the phrase global weirding, which is caught on. I've seen it all over the place. There might even be a show, like a public radio show with that title, which suggests not just a subjective thing, but global weirding is sort of a general sense that the world like it's been weirding itself yeah. for the last 10 years. Like maybe maybe the minds had a point. Something really happened in 2012. We passed through some turnstile of history. But yeah. the world now just shines forth in some kind of permanent weirdness. And so weirding reflects perhaps both our perceptual strategies, our philosophic strategies, but also it just kind of reflects the world. Yeah, So exactly. those are some ways of thinking about that word. I've seen the, the term used to kind of redefine global climate change, right? So we shouldn't talk about global warming anymore. We should talk about global weirding because the problem is not so much that it's just getting objectively warmer. Because if you say that, then every time you have a cold snap, People who are who want to deny global climate change will, will say, "Let's see, it's not. There's no global warming. It's it's cold today. It's colder than it should be." But the, the idea is that patterns are getting skewed, right? That the reliable patterns are getting scrambled and frazzled. Yeah, things are becoming more and more unpredictable. Yep, you can see this in the climate. You can see it in politics. You can see it in culture uh, and in society. In our understanding of of reliable, stable categories, which are betraying their meta-stability now by being challenged in all kinds of ways. There was a time where something uh, like a constitution would have been as solid as a physical concrete monument in most people's heads when it came to how mm -hmm. laws are passed and how how one goes about cutting corners or or getting you know questionable yeah. laws into the books, but now it seems like the the meta stability, which is a term I'm enjoying these days, it's, it's useful for me. Um, meta stability, yeah, meta stability, meaning, well, one way of interpreting it or or of applying it would be to say like, well, this thing looks pretty stable. For example, the fact that the Earth orbits the Sun, right? That's a stable fact, right? However, there's nothing about this that is necessary. Like an asteroid could hit the planet and knock it off course, or the sun could suddenly, you know, like all kinds of things could happen to disturb the orbit of the Earth around the sun. So it's, it's not stable in an ultimate sense. It's meta-stable. It's practically stable. It's uh, for all practical purposes, we can talk about these things as being fixed. And a lot of things that seemed absolutely fixed are now looking a little bit more contingent than they ever did. And so global weirding is a term that actually, I think, undeniably applies to the state of the world right now, insofar as all these stable structures are starting to fritter 
and uh, and wobble. And the way we're pitching our book and our, our series of lectures and discussions is that how does one live in such a world, you know? And weirding becomes more than just a fun thing you might want to do philosophically with right. your favorite novel or film. It can actually become, and I think is increasingly becoming, a kind of survival strategy. Absolutely. That those of us who aren't able to weird, aren't able to see things from the weird angle, are going to have difficulty adapting to events as they are unfolding in this increasingly strange world. There's a tendency to see the weird as something extraneous, something something extra, something added in to life. Like life is just normal and ordinary, calculable, measurable. But then, yeah, you can add a weird element. You can mix things up so that they suddenly seem strange. Or you can imagine some unverifiable condition or reality that would make something weird. But thats I don't think that that's really true. I think that if global weirding has a message is that the weird is at the very core of everything. Yeah. So again, just like you were saying, when you're queering an old 1940s American musical, you're not adding something to it. You're not making queer something that isn't. You're bringing mm -hmm. out the queerness that was in the film already. You're calling yeah. attention to an aspect that is, like you were saying, that is latent in the film. Yeah. To weird is to bring out the background that is actually there, latent in things. Yeah. And to call attention to it. Well, this is getting back to our uh, radical mystery show. Yeah. Because we spent a bit of time in that show thinking about how, like, an, a kind of an obvious objection would be well, if everything is weird, nothing is weird. Everything can't be weird. Weird is a state of exception or excess of the normal, but there will always be some kind of normal, even if it's a chaotic or, or bad normal. Yeah. And so it would be possible to say, well, I don't know, to poke logical holes in what we're saying. But then we got into a sort of thing about how, well, at least the way I would answer would be like, well, no, that for me is strange. Strange is the word that I would use to define that kind of departure from a baseline of like things as they ordinarily are. Mm -hmm. But the weird is something a little bit different. Yeah. quality in things that is uh, a latency that can always be activated. I like it. An, an unpredictability at the core of things. Yeah. A potentiality for, for strangeness, you know, because strange is always a matter of perspective. Something looks strange from this vantage point. Given my experience, this is strange. But the weird is not that. The weird is the ability for anything that feels familiar to become unfamiliar. So like they're connected, the weird and the strange, but the weird is what makes the strange possible. And maybe in every experience of strangeness, there is a soupçon or kind of like hint at the weird. But the weird is much more, I think you're right. It's just this profound latent fact about the world, which has to do, like you were saying, with radical mystery. But anyways, these are all kind of just throwing terms around. But the, the point is that not only is weirding fun, listeners, it's actually, I think, and Phil thinks, Phil wrote the, that part of the text, so it's Phil's idea. It's becoming increasingly necessary. Yeah. And it's natural. That's the other thing I wanted to say. Weirding is natural. Every three-year-old is a master weirdest, you know? <laughs> <laughs> true. Very true. Like a, a three-year-old's Y-bomb is an ultimate excursion into the weird, you know? Time for bed. Why? 
Because you're tired. Why? Because you played all day. Why? You know, like the way kids ask why until you're inevitably taken into these strange zones of indiscernibility where it's like, <laughs> why? Why? Because it's nine o'clock. Why? Because the sun has set. Why? Because the earth orbits and, you know, every day there's a part we're facing the other way. Why? You know, like, it, do, do you know the Louis C.K. routine no, on that? No. Oh, hold on. I'm going to share this over Zoom. It gets so weird and abstract at the end. It's like, why? Well, because some things are and some things are not. Why? Well, because things that are not can't be. Why? Because then nothing wouldn't be. You can't have fucking nothing isn't. Everything is. Why? Because if nothing wasn't, there'd be fucking all kinds of shit that we don't like giant ants with top hats <laughs> dancing around. There's no room for all that. Oh, it's so good. Perfect. <laughs> it Can always fucking nothing isn't. <laughs> yeah, I know. It ends up sounding like Heidegger. If, yeah, if you play the game, you'll end up doing like really high octane philosophy. <laughs> you know, like, that's what the kid wants. The kid wants the weird. The kid wants to know it's the big fucking why. It's not like why rain or why bed. It's why. It's the why. It's the mi radical mystery that every yeah. child understands. As soon as they have the word why, they get it. And if yep. they don't have the word why, they feel it. My cat feels it. I feel mm. it in, what's that thing at the beginning of Lord of the Rings? I feel it in the water. I feel it in the air. It's like yeah, the whole yeah. fucking universe is vibrating with this why. And that's, yeah, that's, that's the right. weird. And, and, and oh, that's beautifully put. The sooner we acclimatize to that. Well, acclimatize is not a bad word for it. And perhaps we've all had a lot of experience with this over COVID, which is a absolutely catastrophic event of global weirding. And also for those living in the United States, the election of Donald Trump was whether you are pro or anti-Trump, people who listen to the show know that I am fervently anti-Trump. Um, but, or, the, uh, or the invasion of Ukraine right now, which is the weirdest shit ever. Like, yeah, what the yeah, yeah, hell yeah. is that? All of these things are, I mean, one way to look at them would be as a training exercise where you are being thrown into the middle of something weird. Like with the Ukraine war, obviously our experience as spectators of that war is very different from people who are on the ground suffering and dying. But with COVID... There was no escaping that. I remember early on thinking like, oh, those motherfuckers in the space station have it good. <laughs> They're in the one <laughs> people in an Antarctic research station. Right. Those are the people who actually can outrun this thing. But this is, it's like my, that dream I had, right? About yeah. the, the virus. There's no outrunning the fucking thing eventually. I mean, you know, I don't think the World Health Organization has declared the pandemic to be over. Sooner or later, those astronauts in the space station had to come down and deal with it like everybody else. Like, we are all on a planet. There's no escape. Although billionaires are apparently trying to figure out ways they can blast off in rockets and leave the rest of us to die in the mess that they've created. Sorry, a little, little unwanted note of bitterness there. Made me think of a great... Douglas Rushkoff piece I read uh, a couple of years ago, but I, I won't get into it, about him speaking to a group of these billionaires. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he thought it was going to be on one thing, but in the end, all they wanted to do is what do we, how do we prepare for the event? 
That's what they're calling it. The event. The event where we lose all of our privileges and we lose all our shit and people are going to be mad at us. And the thing is that all of us are in the midst of this, that the, the attempts to workshop this shit by the uber rich is so pathetic. Or you hear about the same people, tech billionaires who are quietly hiring scientists to help break them out of the simulation. I remember reading about that some time ago. Mm. What's so pathetic about it is that these are people who think that they can come up with some unique customized solution just for them where they get to be the ones who can outrun this shit. All, yeah. When they say this shit, this wave of global weirding. But it's sort of like wanting to escape God. Yeah. Not, to, not, not to put too theistic a point on all this. Of course, I'm not a particularly theistic kind of guy. But nevertheless, it sort of seems like ultimately what these motherfuckers want to do is escape the judgment of God, which just shows that they have failed to understand God. Exactly. And perhaps this is something we're talking about is God, that God is the ultimate weird entity. The ultimate weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what we are seeing is a kind of radiation from some kind of background force from which there is no escape. So, you know, strap in, get a helmet. It's going to be a ride. One thing that I say in the, like the verbiage that we published with the course is um, like, uh, you know, you hear about drunks who survive terrible accidents that they shouldn't have survived because they were drunk and they were so kind of relaxed that when they got themselves into some kind of a violent physical altercation or a crash or something their body just kind of ragdolls and they just kind of go with it yeah they're and, simple enough to absorb it yeah exactly and it seems to me that with the inescapable weirdness of for example covid it is inescapable you're going to crash might as well relax yeah Find a way to kind of go with the violent, tumultuous movement yeah. of the event. I'm not saying that I got through COVID unscathed, but at a certain point, like it's funny, throughout the whole period of COVID, I was doing koan study. And koan study basically is something that asks you to develop this kind of boneless, loose-limbed flexibility in the face of your own certainties or the ways your mind tends to crystallize structures that you then sort of believe really exist. And really in doing koan study, you're developing that loose limbed flexibility, that go with the flow. And I found it to be actually very relevant to the whole business of like living through COVID. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Maybe the Tao is a synonym for the weird to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, the Tao being the way things go, but also like Taoism being the art of adapting to the way things go. And at the same time, getting what you want out of it, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, benefiting from that. So it's not this kind of masochistic uh, giving over to eldritch forces because the, the weirdest thing about the weird yeah, is point. is the, i mean the etymology of the word weird itself points to the weirdness of weirdness 
as such. For example, <laughs> weird used to mean fate, right? The old English right. term means fate. Fate means the will of the gods or of the norns of the fate, the will of yeah. the ultimate authority, you know? And, and we um, would talk about your weird and my weird in those terms. And, and the way that nature and history, time, whatever, conspires to bring things about to instantiate enantiodromias, reversals, you know, um, uh, Macbeth, you know, hears uh, a prophecy and then no matter what he does, uh, the world finds a way to bring him to fulfill it, you know, um, or Oedipus in Oedipus Rex. The twistings of the fates impose a certain result. So it, it, weird originally had this idea of world order, cosmic order, what brings order into the world and meaning and justice and that sort of thing. But now to us moderns, weird means the opposite. It means the absence of sense or meaning. Then that's weird. It's absurd. It's Bizarre. Yeah. It has no explanation. It has. There's been an enantiodromia in the word itself. Eric Davis yeah, has that boing boing piece on the word weird, which is worth reading. We should put in the show notes. But the thing is that to me, it seems like, well, that makes perfect sense that there was this reversal because we are the ones who deny the existence of weird in the old sense. And so when it manifests through synchronicity, through events art. Of, of, through art, through magic, through uh, through just the, the the sheer ironic sense of humor of the universe of nature of history, when it does that, suddenly we are feeling the grip of fate on us, and we cannot account for it. And so our strategy is to call those things weird and to define weird as the absence of meaning. Right. The word is interesting because I think it gets to the the core of the modern problem in a certain way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, that gives us a good reason to talk about weirdness as something pervasive, all pervasive, something ubiquitous. In the face of a logical objection would say that not everything can be weird. Weird in that sense is something that is possessed by every sentient being. Yeah, exactly. Or perhaps insentient. Um, yeah, I don't want to get into all that <laughs> panpsychism and whatnot. Uh, I like that. That's like going to be part of it though, right? You're going to be doing that in. Well, yeah. And that's actually kind of where this, where we start is talking about tears and art, because then when you think about it, like crying at art is a very strange thing because the art is having, it's having a sort of measurable effect on you, like measurable in the sense of like, I don't know, we could count tears in proper scientific fashion. Right. The, the volume of tears could be carefully measured. And that would be a measurable result. I don't think that's all that silly to do. I mean, imagine the film that's made the most people cry. What would you think that would be? Uh, the first 10 minutes of Up. Okay, right. I remember that. So imagine that opening or another film that yeah, I think would be a contender is E.T. I have a vivid memory of seeing E.T. at the movie theater as a kid. And just bursting into tears at the end when E.T.'s dying and all that stuff is going down. Oh, me too. And getting yeah. up in the movie theater, because I couldn't, I couldn't stand the, the emotion was too much for me. I mean, Spielberg is incredibly cruel in that film in the best way <laughs> to children. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he walks you through the genres. It starts as horror, then it becomes science fiction, then it becomes, in the end, it becomes like hyper real 70s, like streets of the Bronx kind of stuff. When you see like E.T. <laughs> lying in, near a culvert. 
with a raccoon chewing at him like in, in the in the mm. ditch like this it gets super real all of a sudden anyways i remember getting up in the movie theater looking around and seeing like everyone in the movie theater was crying all the kids all the parents everyone was crying so imagine like a film like that or the opening of up and collecting all the tears that have been cried as a result of watching that and putting those in an aquarium and that I mean, you would get a, I mean, that's just a quantitative exercise, right? You're just adding up tears. But what you end up with in the end is literally like probably a swimming pool of tears. And uh, which gives you a sense of the measurable effect that a work of art can have. That would be a wonderful surrealist object. It would be. Damien Hirst should do that. I was just going to say, (laughs) Damien Hirst could. And then he'd just take a dive in it, he'd just bomb it from a diving board. <laughs> and it turns out the dive is the artwork, the collection right. of tears yeah. and so on. Yeah. That was all, all just subsidiary to a, a single clumsily executed dive by Damien Or Hurst. it could be just Damien Hurst drowning E.T. in the, uh, in the, in the <laughs> vat of tears. He's <laughs> holding his head under the water. Idiot! <laughs> 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 oh, it's just t- taking a dark turn. <laughs> Anyways, point being, you're right that the, there's a physiological effect. It's not well, just you know, in our heads. I mean, and that's just the more accessible end of a much larger and weirder question, which is like the possibility of art that has a kind of spooky eldritch power. We were just talking in the extra for this week which we just recorded about the difference between saying that objects can bear a trace of memory, like a hammer bears the memory of hammering. It has to, for it to be an effective hammer. But uh, that allows us to talk about the memory of objects or objects possessing mentation of some kind Mm -hmm. in such a way that does not make very many demands on us. And likewise, the idea that art, affects us emotionally and can precipitate a strong emotional state. Okay, sort of get that. But like, when you really start delving deeper into it, okay, so can objects give you a headache? Can objects make you vomit? Can objects kill you? Mm. Not like a radioactive object that makes you sick in this way, but, but like a statue. Could a statue harm you? And this is a quote that I have from... Alejandro Jodorowsky's Psychomagic. It's a book of interviews talking about this psychotherapeutic practice that he developed in Paris of creating surrealist art moments, like actually filling some receptacle with tears and performing some action with it, is exactly the kind of surrealist move that Hodorovsky makes in his psychomagic, mm-hmm. you know, is full of surrealist things that are kind of magical things aimed at healing. Right. So he tells a story, uh, I'm just going to start, this is on page 82, if you happen to have the book. One day, a director of a fine art school with whom I just signed a contract told me, you are naive. You swear by Mexico. Everything seems wonderful to you. But if you dare to look here in this drawer, you will discover there is another aspect of this country. So I moved near the drawer, opened it, and straight away was overcome by an atrocious headache. The interviewer asked, what then did this infernal drawer contain? 
And Hodo answers, horrible wax statuettes used by sorcerers to torture from afar the designated victims of their clients. Their features were in themselves so horrible to look at that I felt faint. If they were exhibited at Beauberg or the Louvre, the public could see what power an art object can have, beneficial or maleficent. A work bearing such energy directly affects the organism of anyone who contemplates it. Although strongly disagreeable in itself, this experience made me wonder. I asked myself, what could a beneficial artist be? The good magician whose works of art would be charged with such a positive force that they would push a spectator into ecstasy. It is a principle that served me thereafter in psychomagic. Mm. And so I engage in some thinking about this, like in what ways could we plausibly imagine that artworks look back? go to an art gallery. Imagine that these artworks are, as indeed many of them were intended to be by their creators, especially if you go to the galleries of African or Oceanic or South American art, they were intended to be, in a certain sense, sentient beings. Yeah. And how does your reaction to artworks change? And I'm not just talking about stuff in the Oceania and Africa, et cetera, galleries, but any gallery, go and look at a virgin and child painting, you know, something that seems very banal and obvious in the history of art, and ask yourself, is it looking back at me? Is this painting alive? Mm -hmm. Not, and not the you, characters in the painting, but the painting as such. Painting it as such, yeah. exactly. Yeah. For that matter, you can go through the entire world doing this. And we've talked about this on this show before in regards to Martin Buber's I and Thou, where mm -hmm. Buber says, you know, there's basically two relations to the world. You can say it, or you can say you, yeah. or thou, but um, let's say you. Most of the time we're saying it, including times we're saying he and she and you. Most of the time when we're talking to people, our response to them is as one to an it. And that's just kind of normal human life, but he is trying to get us to think of a different kind of human life where the world is full of yous, and not just human yous, not just you who I see as you truly are, blah, 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 which might be a, a kind of commonplace and somewhat mistaken way of understanding what Buber is on about. But an understanding of like, what I take Buber to be talking about is a certain kind of quality in things where things cease to be just what Heidegger calls standing reserve. Right. You know, where a tree isn't just a potential site for lumber. Or, know, even, or even just a, a, an instantiation of the concept tree. Like yes, any type exactly. of representation is, is done away with in thou. Right. Exactly. Right. So you can't right, say right, right. thou without prostrating, without getting down before something. Like to say thou is necessarily allowing something to stand over you because yes. in, its, in its full equality with you, it has uh, a power that you won't grant any it. And so yes. it, it, there's this opening, right, in, in Buber's thou. Yeah. Well, a thou or a you in Buber's sense, is a whole world. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like in Buddhism. And when I bow and gasso to you, like 
in that moment, when I see you truly, there is no outside to you. There's no outside to me. There's a moment of connection that is an entire world. Exactly. In any event, we've talked about this as a way that you can participate more deeply in a walk through a forest by looking at the trees as thou's. But I would like to suggest that there's also a way that art is radically weirded by this. This is actually a practice I've been engaging in. I've been going to the Eskenazi Art Museum. And every now and then, when there's nobody looking, (laughs) I will bow to an art object in Gasso, treating an art object as a fellow being, deserving of my respect, exactly in the same way that I might bow to the flower on a Zen altar, back when I was a Zen altar boy, you know, like you, you, you put the stick of incense in the incense sensor, you bow to it. These are moments where you are truly participating in the life of the other. Yeah. And, uh, I'll put it this way. It's an interesting practice and I'm writing a chapter about this and this sort of brings up something that I wanted to get to anyway. Okay. So we've been spending a lot of time just on this chapter, partly because I've been banging away at it. Yesterday was an extremely frustrating day of writing. Uh, I'm just like, oh yeah, this is what it's like to write a book. It sucks. (laughs) Fucking sucks. (laughs) But, um, but I'm a professional. I rise above this. Um, (laughs) I'm bringing it up actually mostly because I want to talk about how this whole business of weirding, if we are indeed in an era of global weirding, an era in which the deity emerges in wrath Mm. and now what, then it is reasonable to ask, well, what do we do about a world that suddenly has revealed itself as being strange? And it always has been strange. We just didn't see it. Yeah, exactly. And so one thing you can do is bow to paintings. Try that shit. The strategies we're proposing, I've noticed, are will seem kind of in, neither here nor there to some. <laughs> but uh, like dream journaling, for instance, because we're doing it. Yeah. We're doing a chapter on on dreams, and I, you know, I'm calling it the dreaming because I love that term, the dreaming, the the noun, both from Neil Gaiman's Sandman series, and also this fantastic failed masterpiece of a role-playing game called Changeling from the 90s, where they developed this whole idea of the dreaming as the realm of the fae and all that. Anyways, keeping a dream journal. Well, okay, is that a strategy for coping with COVID? It's not something I read in the, you know... In, <laughs> the Centers for Disease Control did exactly. not send out a communique about it, no. No, they, there are real reasons why. There's a power in us which, if we really delved and drew on it, would change the world, hopefully for the better, but would definitely change things. One philosopher I've been reading who I'm absolutely fascinated with right now is uh, Gilbert Simondon. I've mentioned him before. I'm reading his course on the imagination that he gave in 65, 66 at the Sorbonne in Paris. 
And it's just a fascinating way of, of approaching the imagination, one that is completely different from other theories of the imagination that I've encountered. You know, it really feels intuitively right to me. Simondon was really into the transformative power of the dreamer, of the, of the imaginer of the imagineer to um, take back a term that Disney took from us before we ever knew we had it, and how things can change as the result of a single person dreaming. It's like that famous Deleuze quote, beware of the dream of the other, because if you're stuck in the other's dream, you're fucked. Essentially, dreams have a tremendous power, but it's like the softest of powers. It's soft power mm. cranked to 11. <laughs> it's a soft power that changes things from beneath. It changes not things, but the context of things. And mm. to be in touch with your dream life, with your dream self, maybe has no discernible practical utility in terms of how you're going to get through your day. But as a practice, and that's another course we have that you're going to do on practice, as a practice, mm. it can change the background. And changing the background, I think, is what we are being called to do in this time. It's what thinkers like McLuhan and Simondon we're trying to call our attention to. Pay attention to the background because the background is going to tell you what things mean and where they stand. But just to go back to the idea like that you were the I and thou, I mean, that passage I read earlier from Deleuze and Guattari about the, the frightening face invoking, evoking yes. another world is a perfect example of a thou experience. Yep. You know, uh, if where you- the face becomes a world. If the face that's frightened, the frightened face looking at you is frightened of you, because you are some kind of torturer or like, um, I don't know, a violent um, uh, aggressor. You are seeing that frightened face as the ultimate it. It is a sign that you exist and that it bends itself to you. But when you see a frightened face in a painting, what you're seeing is a frightened face that is evoking a frightful world. And you're seeing the frightful world in the thou of the painting in the painting that, is, that stands over you, that you cannot reduce to some it that you can control, own, consume, et cetera. And so like yeah. it, it, the practice you're encouraging us to engage in, to bow at works of art, is a way of kind of enacting something that I think is always going on in the aesthetic experience. Yeah. It's just that we're not aware of it. Again, it's latent, it's latent. We're not aware of it. And what you're proposing is a way to become aware of something that's happening already. Yes. Which I think is probably a good way of characterizing the general tenor and tone of the book that we're working on. We're asking people not to add something, you know, like food coloring, to add a green food coloring to your eggs so you can have green eggs and ham, just like in the Dr. Seuss book. The weirdness is not something super added. It is, again, it's something that is always already there, at least latent. Our suggestions, such as they are, are all aimed at harmonizing with that. Yeah. Participating in it, being down with it. Participating is a good word. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some other chapters of the book, and for that matter, course sessions, that were because the course is following the chapter outline of the book pretty exactly. And so, among other things, this is an opportunity for us to work on material that we're shaping in the book. This is an opportunity for you, should you wish to take this class, to participate in the development of what feels like to me pretty significant intellectual work that we're doing together. 
What are some of the other things that we're doing? Well, we've already talked about art that looks back, which is what mm -hmm. you were, and then uh, the dream chapter. It's basically like you can kind of see this as a weird studies greatest hits. Like we're basically taking some of the key things that we've developed on the show and really trying to flesh them out and develop them in a new way. The first one is the trash stratum. And as this is something we got from Philip K. Dick, right? The symbols of the divine first emerge at the trash stratum, I believe is the quote. Right. And so that's a lot of what we do on Weird Studies. We'll take like, you know, um, a film like uh, like John Carpenter's films, or we'll look at uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, and we'll try to find things in there that even we wouldn't have expected to find. Insights. And this goes to another thing about the weird that I wanted to mention quickly. It's that this is the brilliance of Freud and Jung. You know, what they showed us is that the depths of reality reveal themselves in the superfluous, the fanciful, the spontaneous, the accidental, the aleatory. It's there. It's in the hiccup, in the misplaced word, in the um, dream, in the sudden flash of an image in your mind. The most superficial stuff, the, the flotsam and jetsam of everyday life, that's where the depths reveal themselves. And I think that gives us a sense structurally of what's going on in the trash stratum. You know, yeah. the throwaway culture, the entertainment culture. Sometimes that's where you'll find the symbols of the divine that will help you understand what's going on in the world. And the action, if we think about each part of this book and this course as something that both gives us an intellectual analysis of something, but also an action to perform or something it gives you homework, something you can do. If I were to boil down what my advice regarding the trash stratum would be, it would be don't break kayfabe. Right. You yeah. Know, kayfabe is a term from professional wrestling. It's pig Latin for fake. It's the kind of faked reality of professional wrestling that the more you think about it, the weirder it is. And the more realize professional wrestling, even if you're not a fan of the, of that form. And I'm not, I watched it all the time when I was a kid, but like, I don't watch it now preferring unsimulated combat, uh, I suppose, but I respect professional wrestling because it plays around with kayfabe, with the maintaining of a fictional reality within everyday reality in such a way that the boundaries between those two are ever renegotiated. They're always fluid and contingent and porous and often completely invisible. Yeah. In ways that avant-garde art tries but can only dream of. Right? Right. That professional wrestling is a wonderful example of trash stratum culture because it is doing something that is in fact a kind of uh divine artistic project. Mm -hmm. But it's doing it down in the world of yeah, like in in a, I mean, and I say this with love, but in a pretty trashy milieu, right? I mean, it's fucking pro wrestling. I, I, I surely <laughs> I don't even need to explain that. I think the most ardent fans of pro wrestling would tell you that this is some trash stratum stuff. But what trash stratum isn't is just camp. It's not that right. bullshit dismissive, like you're pretending you like it, but you don't. Yeah. Really care about it? Like, oh, it's so bad, it's good. You know, it's a real investment. There's a line about camp by a guy named Charles Ludlam, who is a originally an intimate of 
Jack Smith, who we've talked about on the show many times, queer performance artist, who eventually did a lot of opera staging. He became a, a dramaturg. Interesting guy. And he wrote an essay on camp in a book called Ridiculous Theater, Scourge of Human Folly. And he talks about the way camp was originally a gay aesthetic maneuver that is mentioned in Proust, among other things. And then he writes, then it became popularly known as a word, and as it left the theater and the homosexual underground, it started to take on a popular meaning. It gained a bad reputation, mainly because it had been hanging out with all those homosexuals who had a bad reputation anyway. In the hands of critics who wanted to define it and tie it down, it started to become very special things. Susan Sontag really did a number on camp by saying it was specific things. A Tiffany lampshade is camp. Ronald Furbank novels are camp. A Hollywood movie with a Busby Berkeley number is camp. What's wrong with that is camp ceases to be an attitude towards something and loses all of its relativity. It nails it to the wall and makes it very literal. And he writes a little bit later on, the thing that's really horrible is heterosexual camp, a kind of winking at you saying, I don't really mean it. I mean, and we can say like heterosexual, whatever. The point is the kind of normie appropriation of camp where we say so bad it's good. You say, I'm only pretending to love this. I don't really love this. Whereas what Jack Smith and Charles Ludlam were after was passionate identification. Jack Smith really, truly loved those cheesy old jungle flicks starring Maria Montez. And likewise, professional wrestling can be consumed as camp. But people who love professional wrestling, they love the over-the-top theatricality of it. They are perceiving it as camp in Ludlam and Smith's sense, the flaming image, right? You know, when somebody goes off the top turnbuckle with a flying elbow, that's the flaming image right? Mm -hmm. They're not saying, so bad it's good. It's not that normie tourist bullshit, right? But in order to retain the magic of that, you have to kind of go along with the kayfabe, with the simulated reality that's created in ring that that flying elbow actually connected and was not, in fact, a faked blow. Yeah. And generally speaking, if you're thinking about the trash stratum, I would say the trash stratum what we're looking at are objects not to poke fun at them or to count ourselves superior to them. We're trying to establish some kind of wonderful relationship to them where they open up to us. They tell us their secrets. But in order to do that, you can't break kayfabe. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to think about in that chapter. Yeah. Don't break kayfabe. There's a nice way that it loops back at the end, because the last chapter is one of mine, and it's um, hyperstition is what I've decided to focus on. And it, it comes right back to all that stuff. Um, but in between those two, so trash stratum and hyperstition at the end, we've got art that looks back. Uh, we've talked about this today. We've got the dreams. The second chapter is the zone. And here we're going to develop the ideas we first kind of started working on in uh, episodes 14 and 15 on Tarkovsky's Stalker. And then we've got Diviner's Time, which is basically started as uh, an essay that Phil wrote and published on our Patreon. Then we did an episode on it, and it's become one of our most important tools. It's like the monkey wrench in our toolkit. <laughs> and then there's going to be um, an, a chapter that I'm calling Real Magic, but really what it is about is I'm trying to kind of finally nail this idea of, I, I'm not going to try to 
summarize it here, but it's basically looking at <laughs> what do we mean when we talk about magic? I mean, essentially, before we can talk about ceremonial magic or the practice of magic, what is the conceptualization of magic that allows us to include those things, but also include stage magic or movie magic or quote unquote, it happened by magic. Like, what do we mean mm. by magic? And we're trying to get to the core of that. Um, mm. Then we have one that, which is called for the moment. Are you keeping this title on practice? Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. So titles work might obviously a working might title. Yeah. But I, I don't know if you remember listeners, um, well, some of you have been around for a long time, will may remember episode 35 on MC Richard's book, Centering, um, yeah. which is a wonderful meditation on artistic practice. And so that started one thread of our ongoing conversation centered on this idea of practice, of, when, of repetition and how repetition brings things into reality that would otherwise have remained perhaps locked away in some, you know, phantasmic section of your unconscious. Uh, and then finally, we end with uh, hyperstition individuation. So it's kind of like a tour of some key ideas. I'm having a blast working on it. We're, we're kind of working really separately, both on our things. One of the great things about this series of lectures we're doing as part of the process of writing this book is that we'll be able to make the connections. To make the connections or clash or <laughs> discuss yeah. and then to have everyone taking part of that. It's tremendously exciting to me. I can't wait to start. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I realize that this is something that people in podcasts, indeed all forms of entertainment media, do constantly. It's a kind of fan service-y thing where I'm like, we'd be nothing without our fans, which I always kind of roll my eyes when people do that. But it's kind of true that this show is what it is because of the people who listen to it, that the people who listen to it and communicate with us, either letters that they send or through the, the Discord or subreddit or whatever, they are and have been making the show what it is. Yeah. You know, I was talking a moment ago about how ideas want to go certain places and they want to be certain things or they want to take certain shapes. And ideas will choose people to have as a part of them, part of themselves. And so, you know, in as much as this is a show of ideas, where we bandy ideas back and forth, we're only partly in control of those ideas and where they're going. Those ideas are constantly enlisting people, enlisting communities. Having an idea is making a people. This quote that you've given many times, I remember this was on our Mumbo Jumbo episode, but I know you've said it more times than that, that uh, Paul Clay came to an exhibition of his paintings and said, uh, well, the people are missing. The people are missing, yeah. Yeah, and something you've said repeatedly is that an artwork calls its people into existence. Right. But I feel like every time that you've said that, and it's only occurring to me now, you were talking about us as well. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>